0: Welcome to Response Radio, where you ask and we answer questions of Jewish law in modern times. I'm Rabbi Avi Killeth here with Rabbi Ethan Tucker, Rosh Yeshiva at Hadar, a Center for Higher Jewish Learning based in New York City. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great, Avi. How are you?
0: Um, good. It's, it's been actually a little while since we recorded. I'm curious, uh, what's new with halacha these days?
1: Well, you know, the more it changes, the more it stays the same.
0: I just started learning ghoulin as part of Dafyomi, and I have to say, it's it's not for the faint of heart.
1: Yeah, and it's gonna be ghoulin for a long time. Yeah, I'm, so. in it, I'm
0: in it for the long haul with this one. Gonna be a lot of blood and guts.
1: Yeah, well, I hope you have a lot of charts and color pictures.
0: Yes, I saw there's a new illuminated version. I opted not, actually, to study out of that one. All right, we have an interesting question today. I'm curious to see how this question will end up being relevant and meaningful to a lot of our listeners because the question actually comes from someone who is not Jewish. Hmm. Um, and I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that actually a lot of our listeners probably are Jewish. Although, if you're not, this is maybe a good question for you and, um, and a good signal to say that halakha is not speaking, you know, or questions of halakha do not come up necessarily only in situations where there are only Jews around. Um, and while we have had some questions in that vein, we haven't had a question specifically sent in by someone who does not identify as Jewish. Yeah. Great.
1: All right. Let's hear What's what's it about?
0: We'll see where it takes us. The questioner writes, I am not Jewish, but I am seriously interested in converting. To what extent is it appropriate for a non-Jew to observe Jewish practice? And does it make a difference if I'm considering conversion? Can I and should I keep kosher, observe Shabbat, take on Jewish prayer practices, Do I need to concern myself with halakha at all?
1: That's a really interesting question. Obviously the part that has to do with conversion comes up all the time when people are going through that process and figuring out what they take on when. Uh, But I do really actually want to start where the questioner begins, which is before we even get to that, I'm not Jewish and I'm kind of interested and intrigued by Judaism and Jewish practice and even halakha. And I'm trying to figure out how I might integrate that into my life. So maybe let's start there with, well, what do we think about non-Jews performing mitzvot? Like, and what does the tradition say about that? And here I think it is actually interesting that there are unsurprisingly competing strands in the tradition about that question. You have a kind of more universalist strand that sort of imagines maybe that the Jewish people are given the task of the mitzvot, but maybe there's sort of like an invitation to the whole world to participate. And then you have a notion more of like an inheritance, something that's sort of unique to the Jewish people and that's meant to be unique. And you could become Jewish, but until you have, you really shouldn't be involved there.
0: So maybe there's an underlying question here of what do we even think is the ideal? Would the ideal be that everybody in the world is observing Shabbat and keeping kosher? Um, or is that actually something for Jews in particular to do? And uh, and Dafka specifically, we wouldn't want non-Jews. Yeah. Or it's so, not theirs. It's not their place.
1: That's right. So let me throw out two texts that I think get to these two poles. We'll start first with... Um, the Sifra, early Midrash on the book of Vayikra, of Leviticus, and it has a version that's quoted in the Talmud also. It's picking up on this interesting phrase that the Torah uses at one point to describe God's laws, and it says about them, Asher otam ha'adam bahem, which means what a person should do in order to live by. And the Midrash here picks up on the fact that the noun used to describe kind of the the subject there who's performing the mitzvot is adam is this kind of general mm-hmm. term for human being and the sifra says you know how do you know that a gentile who does the torah literally Torah so it seems like kind of performing the mitzvot in some way is as significant as a high priest because the Torah doesn't say that an Israelite will do, or that a priest will do, or mm-hmm. that a Levite will do, but rather what an Adam will do, a human being. And therefore there seems to be some value to the notion that any human being would do the mitzvot and they would give them
0: life. Yeah, and this text pulls that out. They, they want to read it that way.
1: Yeah, that's right. And so, Goi ve'oseh et haTorah torah hu kechohen gadol. A Gentile who kind of acts out Torah is like a high priest, right? So that, I think we can see that's pretty far on one end of the theoretical spectrum we might entertain.
0: Yeah, it's quite the statement. Um, It makes me think, it's particularly interesting because even within Jews, there are laws that are specifically for priests, and within priests, there are laws that are particularly for the high priest, um, which makes me think that's a, it's a particularly interesting statement to make, not just to say about mitzvot in general, but... Um, you know, even the most selective of mitzvot.
1: Yeah, that's right. No, I think it's uh, it's clearly an unusual and, and powerful statement from that perspective. Okay, shift gears. Yeah. Let's go to the Talmud in Sanhedrin. And there you have the following two statements by Reish Lakish and Rabbi Yochanan, two later sages. Reish Lakish says, A Gentile who observes Shabbat, chayav mitah.
0: Okay, pretty extreme on the other end. Pretty
1: extreme on the other end. And Rabbi Yochanan says a gentile who engages the Torah sheosek b'Torah. We'll come back to that in one second. Also, chayav mita, liable for death. He gives a proof text for that, which is Moses commanded us the Torah as an inheritance. Toratsi valanu Moshe Morasha. It's an inheritance mm-hmm. for us and not for them. Lanu Morasha velolahim. So these are two statements, one about Shabbat, one about Torah. I would say it's not totally clear whether the language of Osekba Torah is meant to be any engagement with Torah, including practice, or more likely that Osikba Torah actually means learning Torah. And you are talking here about not just any mitzvah, but the mitzvah of Talmud Torah to actually study. And that's the inheritance. However, we read it and we can talk that out a little. There's a notion here that there are at least some things, if not everything, in the kind of Jewish canon of practice that are meant to be for Jews only.
0: Yeah, so this is pretty striking. I think I'm struck that it's it really goes beyond do I have to to the you shouldn't um, so much so that it's punishable, I guess it's the ultimate offense. Um, so I'm curious what you what is at the heart of the sin here? The problem is a it's stealing, it's a proprietary issue?
1: Yeah, this is a great question. I want to kind of loop back to it at the end. I actually think, some of the contemporary discourse around cultural appropriation may okay. actually be helpful for understanding at least some of the emotional dimensions here. But technically, I would say at this point, the puzzle is basically as follows. You have these two statements in the Talmud about Shabbat and about la'asok Torah, probably to study Torah. How much are those exceptional and how much are those exemplary? So you might read these as very targeted. Oh, there's a verse about Torah study which says it's an inheritance for the Jewish people. So that's off limits. And actually, Reish Lakish, the author of the Shabbat observance prohibition for Gentiles, that statement, he says, well, there's a verse in the Torah that says that day and night, you know, the sort of order of creation will never stop after the flood. Imagining that somehow humanity has responsibility to kind of keep the world going non-stop. And unless you're a Jew commanded to observe Shabbat, you shouldn't really ever be taking a day off in that way. That might be a very local claim about Shabbat and about Torah study. Hmm. Or these might be archetypes for saying the whole Jewish system of Torah and mitzvot is fundamentally kind of private and parochial.
0: Yeah, it does, it does really resonate for me with the contemporary conversations. I am thinking in particular about uh, a certain narrative that has come out in the past few years where people said you should invite non-Jews to your seders. And there was a pushback movement to that that said, no, you know, non churches shouldn't be holding seders. Seders are for Jews and it's wrong to, uh, for non-Jewish to take that on as an image. Um, I'm curious and I hope this will come out as we continue the conversation where it feels different when somebody is firmly in the camp of non-Jew versus they are moving towards the camp of Jew if that, if that blurs that line.
1: Yeah, we'll get to that. And I think that that may, in fact, be, be quite different. Let, let me share what the Talmud does in a little bit of synthesis here and then what Maimonides does, kind of following up, which I think are kind of our main anchors for where this conversation ends up. So the Talmud actually pits at least a version of the two poles against each other. Um, it quotes those positions of Reish Lakish and Rabbi Yohanan cracking down on Shabbat observance and seemingly Torah study by Gentiles. And it says, hey, but what about that text that said, all human beings who observe the Torah are like high priests? Doesn't that go against it? But it quotes it in a slightly different way. Instead of talking about someone who does or performs the Torah, mm-hmm. goi ve'oseh et torah here that text reads, that other verb of kind of busying or engaging that in the Babylonian Talmud generally refers to intellectual engagement, which makes it sound like when they make that the kind of tension here in the discussion, that the only thing they're kind of bothered by is that there's one text that says you shouldn't study Torah and another text that says, yeah, anyone can study Torah. And they resolve it by essentially saying, Yeah, Gentiles shouldn't study Torah broadly, but they can study Torah about the seven Noahide commandments or the sort of laws and materials around what it is to be a basic, decent human being that might happen to be in the Jewish canon, but are not particularly targeted to a Jewish audience. And the result of doing that is actually the Talmud kind of leaves open and unclear what do we think about Gentile performance, of other mitzvot. Learning seems like they're very skittish about it, and also Shabbat, but beyond that, it's not clear.
0: So just clarify for us the play on Ose and Oseh, which one is is which?
1: Yeah, so Ose seems like it's about performing, doing something, doing physical things, or refraining from physical things. This would be something like keeping kosher, Shabbat, Jewish ritual practices, all the things that the questioner asks about. Osek is more about jumping into a Beit Midrash or being a part of kind of a culture of learning and discussion but that feels like it might be much more theoretical. So the bottom line of the Talmud seems to be studying Torah is some kind of uniquely Jewish enterprise at least when it's about specifically Jewish mitzvot and specifically Jewish topics. That's point one. Point two, Shabbat seems to be somewhat problematic if we accept Rish Lakish's articulation Mm -hmm. that Gentiles shouldn't rest on Shabbat, but it's left a little bit vague what we do with all the other mitzvot and whether Gentiles can, could, should in some way ideally observe them.
0: Does that come into play at all with interfaith? You know, I I was referencing interfaith satyrs but it sounds like interfaith Torah study actually would be more of a problem for this text. And I think a lot of people who raise an eyebrow about the interfaith Seder would never think to complain or or be concerned about interfaith Torah study.
1: Yeah, it definitely is. We may have to come back to this in a future episode because I feel like actually that's a whole rich and fascinating topic on its own. There are other verses that get invoked for that, that God somehow delivers the divine word, to Jacob and the rules and statutes to Israel, v'aravli Akov, Israel, and traditions that say to Israel and not to the Gentiles, and understand that to be part of the intellectual process of Torah. I agree with you, that's a sort of shocking text for many people who certainly in the contemporary kind of pluralistic North American marketplace of ideas. Um, assume, well, the one thing you can always do is discuss and learn things with people. And it's not so simple for reasons I think we may loop back to on what does it mean for something to be kind of particular and owned by me in some way.
0: Yeah. Okay. But we'll stay in the realm of practice for now since that was the question.
1: Yeah. So let's stay in the realm of practice and see what Maimonides does here. and Maybe we can take apart together kind of what is motivating the complexity here. So Maimonides basically tries to kind of codify everything here and split the difference. So he comes out and he says...
0: Like a good posek, Like a good posek,
1: <laughs> A Gentile who studies Torah is liable to the death penalty. A Gentile who observes Shabbat, liable to the death penalty. But then he adds something interesting, which I think may be helpful to us. He says, here's the general rule. You don't allow them to make up their own new religion and to kind of invent their own scheme of mitzvot based on what seems right to them. Wow. They should either convert and accept all the mitzvot or stay to be Gentiles who observe the seven Noahide laws and just be righteous and good people who merit the world to come for doing that. In other words, what Maimonides is kind of seeing as the root of the problem here is a certain kind of like, Selecting from the buffet of mitzvot, creating your decaf latte with whatever on top that you like, of these sort of uh, you know normative commitments that morph into kind of your own personalized religious practice. This is where I'm curious to hear what you think. I hear some overtones of the cultural appropriation concern. Mm-hmm. Whereas, if you want to join me in doing this, welcome, come on in. If you're talking about taking the thing that I relate to as sort of covenantally binding as something that might bring you some added meaning on a Tuesday, I'm feeling like you're actually degrading it.
0: Yeah, um, that's really fascinating. I definitely agree with you. I hear those echoes. You know, the images that come to mind right at this moment, they are maybe not great examples because they are rituals as opposed to laws. Minhagim, mean, as opposed to Halachot. But I, I think about how non-Jewish weddings, like, and by that I mean weddings that have no Jewish partner and potentially no Jews attending. Um, sometimes there will still be a smashing of the glass right. at the end or a chuppah, you know, a wedding canopy or even a hora dancing um, because those three images are, are just awesome, and they have actually become part of American culture in some ways through right. movies and, and cinema and images, um, that, that people are like, yeah, I want a piece of that, um, that this feels like it's uh, it's Maimonides' way of saying, no, you don't get to just pick and choose and take a little taste of our culture and our religion um, unless you are seeing it in its bigger picture, Um and seeing it in in its entirety.
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's really a great way of articulating it, and it's therefore not surprising that Rambam then, in the very next paragraph, kind of swings back to another statement that at first sounds like it's saying something totally different, but I think really fits. He then says, yeah, but of course, a Gentile who wants to do any of the mitzvot in order, literally, l'kabel Sahar to get reward, mm-hmm. which I think here means something like, because they see there's some kind of value to doing that mitzvah, and they would like to participate in it, and something good will come of it to the world, to God, to them, then you don't stop that person from doing that, even, you know, as long as it's done sort of in its proper way, kihil chatas, and that is kind of the meaning of the other statement of, if someone wants to participate in the mitzvot and kind of do them for real and do them on their own terms, well, then there's actually something very powerful and important about that. Now, I think he's a little bit walking a tightrope here because on the one hand, I think whether we call it cultural appropriation or something else, he's afraid of mitzvot being kind of used for some other purpose. On the other hand, he feels like any basic universal vision that Judaism has for humanity can't kind of see it as bad if people are doing mitzvot for the right reasons and that's his effort to kind of hold those two together
0: yeah i have to say i love that um i love that next line and i feel like it is i i hear it exactly the way you're reading it him saying if you understand that it is a mitzvah if you understand it as a commandment and that's why you want to do it then you're doing it for the right reason. The only problem or the only transgression would be to do the activity without an underlying understanding of it as part of service of God or our mitzvot as a commitment or as a series of commitments instead of you know, a fun activity or lighting Shabbos candles because you wanted light.
1: Yeah, he has, he has actually a great formulation and one responsum, which is, you know, as you would imagine, a little sort of, theologically heavy-handed in a medieval way, but I think gets to this. He basically says, yeah, Gentile can do any mitzvah they want as long as they do it while acknowledging the prophecy of Moshe, our teacher, but which is a way of kind of saying, are you doing this because, I liked what you said before, you're seeing the whole picture. You're kind of seeing, oh, this is part of a tradition of revelation and, uh, and kind of things being passed on throughout the generation Right now, I'm like connecting deeply to this thing, but I kind of get it's part of this larger package. And I'm feeling drawn to that. I'm feeling in awe of that. I'm feeling like I'd like to be a part of that. Um, that feels different. I think he's trying to distinguish that from, that seems cool. Uh, you know, I'd like to do that. I'm going to try to buy into the whole larger thing here, but that piece seems like it would fit in with my life. That's the line Rambam's trying to draw. And again, it's not sort of all warm and fuzzy and welcome everyone in. It's sort of, we do have some universalist vision here. We do really want people to be able to feel like they can come in. And these things have kind of an integrity of their own that's independent of how people engage with them.
0: I hesitate to ask this question because I'm nervous about where it could take us in the conversation, but I also think it's here and, and I want to acknowledge it um, and hear your thoughts. Obviously, if I was to say to you, what does Rambam think about Jews who treat mitzvot this way and are choosing one-off things because it seems fun and not seeing it as a bigger picture of something, um, I, I may be able to presume that Rambam would not be excited about that idea. Um, but I'm curious whether we think, um, you know, as the two of us sitting here now, whether we think there is something in this statement from Rambam that speaks to the way that Jews treat meets vote and or whether we would say, no, actually the way that Jews treat mitzvot vote is fundamentally different from the way that non-Jews treat meets vote. Um, and that maybe just by being Jewish, you know, that by being born Jewish, we're gonna question your your motives a little less or your intent matters less. Um, and it's just it's just good for you to do mitzvahs, you know, just good for you to fulfill commandments. Um, I don't know, I, I both hesitate to bring it up because I think it's a sticky area and I'm, and I'm curious what you think.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there is a hierarchy that's always present between being kind of um, committed to something in a sort of like enthusiastic, self-authored way as opposed to just doing something because like you have to or someone expects it of you. And right, the former is always better. It's mm-hmm. always considered to be better to say, yeah, I'm doing this because it's the most amazing thing, et cetera, et cetera. But there is, I think, a difference that starts in rabbinic sources and goes all the way through to Maimonides and that I would sign on to also, which is that, yeah, part of the covenant between God and the Jewish people does mean that there's a kind of a multi-generational non-negotiable being locked into sort of the story and expectation of mitzvot for people who are a part of the Jewish people in a way that does not have an analog to someone who is thinking about whether this is something they want to take on. Now even someone who's born Jewish um, I think there's no question, as I said, that the move from feeling like you're stuck with something to feeling like you would author it yourself is a deeply important part of the tradition itself, right? It's the move from serving out of fear as opposed to serving out of love. Yeah. Um, but there is an element here, look, it goes to the inheritance language that we heard earlier of it's different to have something that you've inherited from the past as opposed to something that you're encountering and deciding if you want to integrate into your life. Um, now, practically, kind of experientially, are there Jews who may be ancestrally Jewish, but in terms of any number of given mitzvot, it's not really an inheritance for them. Like, they weren't raised doing it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't expected of them. Yeah, I think that's that's clearly right. Part of the sort of almost mysterious picture of like a covenant with a people that's multi-generational is sometimes telling people yeah you know this may not be something you've sort of focused on inheriting but it's your birthright in a certain kind of way that it's not for others
0: yeah maybe i'll bring us back to the rambam text the text from maimonides because i really see the questioner in that last framing from maimonides where the questioner actually phrased what is my role as a non-Jew doing, commandments or observing mitzvot? And I think that Maimonides is already in that very early text seeing that the person who is writing this question is in a fundamentally different category. it is not as simple as they're a non-Jewish person observing Jewish laws. They are a non. They are in this sort of in-between category of non-Jew who under who wants char. Um, and what does it mean to be a non-Jew who wants you know, schar being the reward, or they want into the good stuff of what the bigger picture is of halakha. And that that's really surprising and exciting to me to find this person in that, in that language from Maimonides.
1: Yeah, so let me jump actually to another text, which also loops back to the questioner's uh, shade on the question of, well, okay, I'm not Jewish and I'm asking this question, but... I'm also potentially interested in converting Mm -hmm. and asking whether that makes a difference. And this is an amazing text from the Sefer Chassidim. It's from medieval Germany. Rabbi Yehuda he and his students kind of have a whole set of traditions that come together in this work. And get this. Here's the case they're talking about. Someone who's coming to convert to Judaism. And they've already basically started to kind of get into observing mitzvot. They're like, yeah, I want to sign up for this. This is the way of life I want to live. The positive mitzvot, the restrictive mitzvot. And they say, I want to be circumcised. I'm ready to go. And then there's some character here who apparently was hanging out with this person who was routinely offering the person trafe non-kosher food.
0: Mm -hmm. There usually is such a character, I would say.
1: And saying, well, you know, he hasn't been circumcised yet, he hasn't immersed, so he's a nohri, he's a Gentile, and, you know, why, why should I care about that? In a way, you can actually hear this person as carrying out some of the logic of, you know, a more extreme interpretation of Rabbi Yochanan or Reish Lakish, like, this person is not in the world of mitzvot yet, so let's not play some charade as if they can kind of take it on. Until they convert, which is great if they mm-hmm. do that, I'd like some clarity here of, like, they're not Jewish, right? right? So this question comes, basically, to, to this text. And the answer is kind of striking. It says, how could you possibly feed that person non-kosher food if they've already, basically, committed to taking on the mitzvot? <laughs> In other words, the move that's being made here is to say it's one thing to say that Gentiles are not obligated in mitzvot. Okay, that's a sort of fundamental principle of the entire rabbinic system of understanding how these work. It's another thing to say that you are going to disregard as completely irrelevant commitments that someone has already begun to take on because they haven't gotten all the way across the finish line. And the Sefer Hasidim here actually seems to be saying, no, there is this moment, I don't know if we can even kind of pinpoint it, but there is this moment where you see that the person has started to take on a commitment to act a certain way, where even if the person is not yet a Jew, their mitzvot have kind of like enough self-referential integrity to them that you can't be undermining that and feeding them non-kosher food.
0: Right, so it's almost, it's an acknowledgement really that there is a category of converting. I am in the process of converting. I've heard this come up in a modern context with People who feel outraged when somebody who is in the process of converting is asked in a synagogue environment to do something that we might call the the Shabbos goy role that when there is a moment that you ask someone, hey, could you turn off that light switch? Because I know you haven't converted yet. That that can be deeply off-putting and troubling to the person who is there converting because they feel like, hey, I'm not in a non-Jew role, I am in a, the process of becoming a Jew role, which is fundamentally different place.
1: Right. Now, what is interesting, taking that example for a minute, what you're still left not totally resolved by the Sefer Hasidim text is, well, sure, he said, hey, you can't just feed that person Shrei food, but Shabbat, you recall, is the subject of this very specific statement in the Talmud of, uh, hey, yeah. that is something that we keep like very special for the Jewish people. This leads to debates among rabbis who are shepherding people through conversion. Should you actually be sure, until you finalize the conversion by going to the mikvah, to every Shabbat, do something that violates Shabbat that week? And you have some rabbis for whom, yeah, that's the standard. They'll say, you should be totally observing Shabbat, but I don't know, you know, carry some object outside of an Eruv. Yeah. Or turn on a light once, you know, yeah. towards the end of Shabbat. And interestingly, you have others who invoke this Sefer Hasidim more broadly, who are like, no, you don't do that. You're trying to get the person up to this standard. And that statement of Rabbi Yochanan is about Not someone who is not yet Jewish observing Shabbat, but it's actually about something very different, which is someone who is showing no uh, inclination or direction to becoming Jewish, deciding that they are going to do Shabbat in the way that Rambam talks about sort of like making up their own religion. Um, Almost, yes, are you culturally appropriating something or are you trying to enter a culture?
0: Um, It sounds... Like you're saying, this is still a live question that um, rabbis are still giving different answers on.
1: On the Shabbat piece, for sure. Yeah, so I think going back to, you know, what's the answer to our questioner? Um, I think for sure when we're in the zone of someone moving to, uh, you know, potentially convert to Judaism. So obviously the adoption of the mitzvot and their practice um, is not just allowed. I think it really is a sort of almost... It's unimaginable that it's not an intrinsic part of the process. Um, with this one question of, like, should Shabbat look a little different after the moment you converted than before? My own personal inclination is that I don't feel the strong pull of requiring that, that breaking uh, until the last minute. But I kind of respect it and get it in the sense of there ought to be something that's deeply meaningful and kind of looks different. Uh, on the other side of the conversion process. But I think the thing that I hope we've opened up is that even when you are not headed towards conversion, uh, there is this meaningful space that's opened up in the conversation for what it's like to think of mitzvot as something that a much broader human population should tap into, but with some real kind of protectiveness around the integrity of the mitzvot on their own terms. And I think it's something that Jews have also been rightly worried about as a minority throughout history. It's very easy for minorities to have their practices kind of dissected, picked apart, Mm -hmm. and kind of used by majority cultures at their convenience. And some of the ferocity in the statements of Rabbi Yochanan and Rish Lakish are really about saying, hey, you know, Shabbat is not just like something nice that we do. This is like the lifeblood of who we are. You want to join that, great, we can talk. But don't trivialize this as kind of a spiritual practice because it's much more than that to us.
0: Yeah, this feels like a great example of Moments when, you know, I think even 10, obviously definitely 20 years ago, if there wasn't the language of cultural appropriation flying around, that feels to me like such the right definition for the phenomenon that Rambam is concerned with here, that I almost can't imagine trying to have this conversation about this text without that phrase and concept, although obviously many generations of Jews did do that. Um, It sounds like... Rambam is telling us cultural appropriation is real, and that's not what conversion is. When non-Jews are converting to Judaism, that's different. It's just different, and the fact that it's different doesn't mean that the cultural appropriation is any less serious or concerning.
1: Yeah, and even when Gentiles who are not converting are doing something with, to take your phrase again, the whole picture in mind, in his language, the nivuah of Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses' prophecy and sort of the larger mosaic of the Torah, Uh, then you've got the possibility of people joining into your culture, but it's really dependent on that larger view.
0: Yeah, I wonder if that, to come back to the Seder idea, is the difference between inviting non-Jews to your Seder versus there being a church holding a Seder all on their own without any Jews present. Maybe that helps give language for the distinction between why one seems like a great idea and one feels uncomfortable to us.
1: Yeah, and I think the last thing I would say about this, I mean, we could talk about this at such depth, is that the other thing about Shabbat and the Torah, which are these two things that get singled out, is the question of, you know, some mitzvot, I think, kind of feel almost more sacred than others. Like, they're all holy, but there are things where you feel like, are you maybe trespassing? on something. I mean, I remember very vividly at one point when there was some kind of music video that Madonna made that involved her putting on fillin'. Yeah. And feeling totally violated by that. Right? Feeling like that was literally kind of taking the sacred and making it mundane. Like it was there was a profaning in some way. Um, in a way that, you know, I think fill in particular, right, as an example. We feel like that's a holy object. You sort of don't engage with that unless you're doing it in this larger framework. In a way that, like other mitzvot, I don't feel the same way if someone's sitting in a sukkah, yeah. even though it's not any less of a biblical command. But I think it's interesting to probe also which mitzvot trigger that notion of profaning the sacred for us if people feel like they're using them as opposed to performing them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, back to the oseh uh, to do versus osik to interact with or to, to study, to engage with. I wanna thank the listener who sent in this question for for listening and for sending us the question. And I hope um, if anyone is listening to this podcast thinking, you know, I've had a question and I haven't been sure if this is really the right audience or the right address that you'll consider actually sending us your questions. And we would love to hear from you. Project of the Hadar Institute and Jewish Public Media. Thanks to Analia Bernstein Simpson for producing this podcast and to Noah Gendler for editing this episode. Have a halachic question you'd like answered on the show? Email us at halachahadar.org. H A L A K H A H. You can also leave us a message at 215 297 4254.